Hello and welcome to Saga 50 for 50 on Heritage Bites, produced by Heritage Mississauga. 2024 marks the 50th anniversary since the incorporation of the town of Mississauga, Port Credit and Streetsville to create the city we now know and love. In this special celebration of Mississauga, we invite you to join us as we walk down memory lane with 50 weeks of podcasts recounting incredible moments in this city's rich history. This is Saga 50 for 50. And welcome to another episode of Saga 50 for 50. My name is Justine Lin, the Collections and Resource Lead here at Heritage Mississauga. And my name is Melissa Toss, the Social Media Coordinator with Heritage Mississauga. February is Black History Month, so today we wanted to discuss more recent Black history. If you tuned into our last Black History podcast, you will remember that Heritage Mississauga first embarked on documenting Mississauga's early Black population back in 2005, thanks to Aaron Brubaker, a former summer student at Heritage Mississauga. Since that time, numerous other researchers have added to our knowledge. This early work was frankly unprecedented because it was the first time in our city's history that this subject matter had been researched and compiled at such length. However, we realized that while it was vitally important to capture the early history, which was in danger of being forgotten, we also realized that we have been creating a gap in doing this work. Our population is made up of many different waves of Black immigrants. Our earliest Black population was mostly made up of free or enslaved Black peoples from the United States or Canada. However, our modern Black population in Mississauga is predominantly made up of people from the African continent and the Caribbean. These people have different histories and cultures. So today, we wanted to bridge this gap in our understanding of Mississauga's Black history, this time on Saga 50 for 50. This podcast will be discussing themes of slavery, racism, and discrimination. The subject matter may be difficult for some listeners. Viewer discretion is advised. So, Justine, today's topic is very important to you, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Like many people in Mississauga, my family is originally from the Caribbean. My family is Chinese Jamaican, and I grew up hearing all the stories from my granddad, visiting Jamaica a lot as a kid, just like really loving the culture. And of course, the food, I cannot forget that. I remember when I went into the heritage field as an adult and I was doing a mini exhibit with my museum management uh, class, and I was going to talk about why my family moved from Jamaica to England to Canada in the 1960s. And I remember my granddad asked me why. Why would I be doing such a project, such a topic? Didn't I know that nobody cares about us, about poor Jamaican immigrants? We weren't kings, we weren't queens. History must not care about us, right? And it's from that day on that I realized so many of our elders were probably told throughout their entire lives that their history did not matter. I knew that I needed to do my part to help those after us feel that their stories were important and deeply valued. 
So while I love to talk about early Black communities in Mississauga, I think we need to really uplift modern Black histories as well. The Black community is not a monolith. It's made up of so many cultural groups whose stories also deserve to be told during Black History Month. I agree. We know that the earliest Black Canadians were those who suffered slavery here in Canada. British colonies participated in the transatlantic slave trade between the 16th and 19th centuries, with both New France and Upper Canada having slaves. After 1760, the number of Black slaves in the colony increased due to an influx of American loyalists following the American Revolutionary War. Between 1671 and 1834, 4,200 slaves were documented in Canada. However, even those who did not own slaves benefited from slave economies in other countries. For example, while early settlers in Canada could have done their own maple sugaring, the more highly sought after white sugar would have been imported from places like Cuba, Jamaica, and other surrounding islands. White sugar is made from sugarcane. For those of you who have never seen or felt sugarcane, I can tell you it's extremely tough. As a kid, I remember some of my family in Jamaica, they had basically sugarcane on their property. So when we would come to visit, they would chop a stalk down with a machete and we would just basically suck on it um, because you can't bite in it. You can't chew it. It's way too hard for that. I can't even imagine the back-breaking work, toiling day in and day out, dig holes to the plant, tend it, harvest it, feed it down, extract the juice, then boil it and refine it into white sugar. I cannot even imagine. Slaves who did this type of work would not have lived long due to the horrendous conditions on the sugar plantations. So each time that Canadians enjoyed their beautiful white sugar cookies or put white sugar from the sugar cane into their tea, they were supporting that industry. It may have been far from our shores, but they did benefit from this. It was industries like this that began to be called into question and scrutinized by the abolition community. On August 1st, 1834, the British government freed all slaves within the empire and outlawed slavery. At this time, Upper Canada had a small number of men and women still enslaved, approximately less than 50 people. While abolition was a massive win, I just want to say that unfair labor practices did continue to exist in Canada and other British colonies. For example, the sugar business continued, except this time with free black workers and indentured servants from India and China. And this is actually how my family came to the West Indies. Uh, however, in Canada, abolition created a means for Black Americans to escape slavery south of the border. When the Fugitive Slave Act of 1850 was passed in the U.S., it made the country unsafe for any freedom seekers. No longer could they go undetected in the North because slave-catching parties would follow them right up to the border. They had to leave the country altogether. This began the next largest immigration wave into Canada. Between 1850 and the American Civil War, the Black population in Canada increased from 35,000 to 60,000. Canada was seen as a land of freedom to start a new life. The Underground Railroad was used extensively by freedom seekers and operated from about 1820 until 1865. It was made of a network of secret routes, safe houses, and conductors, that is, people, that assisted former and fugitive slaves to escape to Canada. Estimates suggest that between 30,000 to 100,000 slaves escaped to Canada via the railroad. 
This is really the first time period when we see Black residents here in historic Mississauga in slightly larger numbers. And when I say large numbers, the number is still very, very low. One family here, another there. It's very, very minimal. Yet through Aaron Brubaker's research, we were able to understand a little bit more about their lives. They rarely owned land and often worked as laborers. The largest concentration of Black residents was in Port Credit, likely because of its vicinity to Toronto and Oakville. However, on a whole, historic Mississauga does not seem to be a place where Black immigrants congregated. In Peel region, there are no records of an African Methodist church, Black schools, or really a Black community to speak of. But some did come. Likely the distance from the American border and geographic obscurity were incentives, but they did not tend to stay long. Instead, it seems that historic Mississauga was merely a stopping point. They might have stayed here for a couple years, then moved on to an area with a more established Black community. However, because they tended not to stay long, very little evidence of their existence remains. Yet even with our small community, it is clear that some residents were more welcome than others. For example, when two Black men fell on hard times in Port Credit, one had his expenses paid for and his well-being taken care of, while the other was taken to the poorhouse. It seems clear that all Black residents experienced some form of discrimination, but the degree to which they experienced discrimination may have varied. Often, when the white population felt threatened economically or otherwise, tensions often arose. As more refugees entered Canada from the United States, the more unwelcome they began to feel. And heaven forbid if you were to actually challenge these discriminatory systems. For example, when Solomon Northrup, of 12 years a slave, came to Streetsville in 1857 to give a talk on behalf of the Anti-Slavery Society of Canada on the evils of slavery, he was met with a hostile reception. He was jeered off the stage, preventing his lecture from continuing. He had to flee the lecture hall and was escorted to safety by Streetsville hotel keeper Robert Stevens. Ultimately, despite abolition, systemic employment, housing, and service discrimination continued here in Canada. Many restaurants, hotels, and theaters refused service to Black Canadians. In 1910, new immigration legislation was passed, which allowed the government to prohibit and even deport immigrants who were, quote-unquote, unsuited to the climate or requirements of Canada. Who was considered undesirable or unsuited, however, was left up to the interpretation of white immigration officials, who were themselves most likely racist. A lot of this immigration discrimination ended up being set squarely at the feet of people of color, whether East Asian, South Asian, Black, or any other ethnic background they deemed unworthy. Many immigration authorities refused to answer Black immigrant questions and basically made it so difficult to immigrate that many just gave up. The result of this was that few Black immigrants were able to enter Canada in the early 20th century, and the effects of this are dramatically felt in historic Mississauga. If the Black population we had before was tiny, the Black population in the 1911, 1921, and 1931 census was basically non-existent. While it was true that we are likely missing a lot of people because the census was only done every 10 years, the drastic decline is pretty obvious. For example, one of the only Black residents on the 1911 census 
was Clay Mitchell, who was a domestic worker. And they had immigrated from the United States in 1901, prior to the 1910 ruling. Of course, Black people from other parts of Canada, such as Montreal and Nova Scotia, could have moved here. For example, in the 1920s and 1930s, there was a huge influx of Black Canadians from the Maritimes leaving their communities in search of better job opportunities in cities in the West. However, we were not a big city. We were a rural township made up of small, predominantly white farming communities. Therefore, the draw was fairly low from within the country. With immigration also limited, it is no wonder that our Black population steeply declines following the 1910 immigration legislation. Those who do remain would have faced clear discrimination. Without Black people in your community, you can imagine that misinformation, stereotyping, and discrimination were allowed to run rampant. Though there were those who were willing to help Black residents, still others viewed the Black population as a quote-unquote threat. Communities with a large Black population also faced hostilities, with Oakville being home to a chapter of the Ku Klux Klan. However, Mississauga still had its fair share of racial incidents. We have evidence that residents in historic Mississauga were practicing segregation despite no laws legalizing such behavior in Canada, unlike in the United States. In 1954, an Avro-Canada employee tournament was held at the Lakeview Golf Club. The previous year, James Marshall, a Black Avro-Canada employee, won the 1953 Novice Tournament and was scheduled to compete again in 1954. However, when the Lakeview Golf Club heard this, they banned Marshall from competing. The golf club alleged that white patrons would never want to play on the same fairway as a black man. The refusal was in line with a standing order from the club's owner, Mr. A.W. Pirtle. According to greenskeeper James Firth, the rule banning black players from the field originated the year prior when white club members had taken offense to a black man playing on their fairway. It is unclear what this prior incident in 1953 had been, but it is possible that this was in reference to James Marshall's previous win at the tournament. As we mentioned earlier, challenging the established white authority was risking retaliation. When the greenskeeper was interviewed again about the incident, he denied that any rule like that existed or of this apparent prior incident. When asked further, A.W. Purtle suggested that the practice was more widespread than anyone, even the greenskeeper James Firth had let on. When asked if they had such a rule, Mr. Pirtle countered, Why pick on us? Why don't you ask some other golf clubs the same question? Illegal segregation was not the only way in which Black residents were made to feel uncomfortable and unsafe. For example, minstrel shows also began to pop up in historic Mississauga in the mid-20th century. They particularly seemed to flourish in the 1940s, though they would continue until the 1970s. Black-based minstrelsy originated in the 1830s in the northern United States. By applying burnt cork makeup, white actors depicted parodies of enslaved Black people. Ignoring the realities of Black life, Black-based minstrelsy is centered around stereotypes that equate Black identity with laziness, ignorance, childishness, and hypersexuality. It's hard to imagine that only a single generation has passed since Black-based was performed in Mississauga's public spaces. Research by a former Heritage Mississauga student, Rachel McCollum, uncovered that minstrel shows were presented by Streetsville Secondary School, 
Dixie Public School, and Clarkson Community Center, to name a few. Some groups put on one-time performances, like what was reported to have occurred in the 1944 minstrel show at Cooksville Town Hall and Dixie Public School, which was broadcasted to radio. However, the Clarkson Minstrels Blackface Jamboree and the Streetsville Lions Club's Minstrels Memories were longtime annual events. These performances were complete with media anticipation, large crowds of 400 each night, and full casts of 50 quote-unquote performers. Inky, Ebony, and Sambo were among the stage names used. Song and production titles such as Snow White and the Seven Spasms, Shine and Old Man River, show that entertainment in our city has not always respectfully celebrated cultural diversity. Rather the opposite, it seems. Streetsville's first minstrel memories show in 1944 was described as a strong comeback, quote unquote. These types of shows were described as being modern revivals of the shows held in the past. Associating blackface with nostalgia was a tactic used to override the harmfulness of this practice. Initiatives such as welcoming senior citizens into shows free of charge and having the Clarkson minstrels perform for men at Sunnybrook Hospital are examples of blackface in Mississauga being used as nothing more than, quote-unquote, old, reliable community entertainment. The theme of charity was also used to uphold this practice. Some of the charitable causes that Mississauga's minstrel shows supported were the Victorian Order of Nurses, the Children's Welfare Fund, and the Ontario Farm Home for the Deaf. With tickets being sold at the Port Credit Weekly's office and the shows being sponsored by local businesses and churches, blackface was not something that was privately practiced by a few, but a significant aspect of Mississauga's cultural history. One month after the assassination of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. in 1968, the Streetsville Lions Club admitted that quote-unquote, minstrel memories had come under attack in the past from ultra-civil rightists and others simply concerned about the potential damage a blackface show might do to racial relations in these touchy times. However, they defended the practice. Yes, you heard that right. They defended it, saying it was nothing more than a gentle spoof and hardly in these times in this country bearing overtones of racism. Really? The group opted to use that year's blackface show as a chance to stage what they referred to as a quote-unquote tasteful and eloquent tribute to Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. This mainly involved singing the same hymn that was sung at Dr. King's funeral. You would think that this would have stopped the shows, but no, minstrel memories continued for seven more years until roughly 1973, just a year before the city of Mississauga was amalgamated. Coincidentally, this was the same time in Mississauga's history when immigration from diverse countries began in earnest. After the Second World War, Canada experienced an economic boom. Immigrants from the Caribbean, particularly the British West Indies, came either directly to Canada or via other Western nations. The West Indian domestic scheme, which was in place from 1955 to 1967, encouraged women from Jamaica and Barbados to work as domestic workers. The subjugation of these women into low-paying service or domestic positions reflects lawmakers' inherent bias that Black people were suited for only certain type of work. Relics of enslaved labor practices kept people in cycles of poverty for generations. 
When the points immigration system was introduced in 1967, it had the effect of ending much of these discriminatory immigration issues. It assessed potential immigrants in a points-based system, which ranked people by education, skills, and employment prospects, not race. It had the effect of opening immigration to Caribbean and African migrants in the first real way. By 1973, Caribbean immigrants made up the largest group of new Canadians. One of the largest Caribbean groups that came to Canada was the Windrush Generation. After the war, Britain needed to be rebuilt. Throughout the entire British colonial period, West Indians were told that Britain was the quote-unquote motherland. People were told to have a sense of duty towards Britain, and in turn, they would be taken care of. Caribbean countries were also struggling economically after the war, and job vacancies in the UK offered an opportunity. Many Caribbeans who were themselves struggling wanted to help their mother country rebuild. Coming to Britain first on the HMT Empire Windrush, first from Jamaica, then aboard other ships and planes from across the Caribbean, many were shocked to find that they were unwanted. Britain was, in fact, not there to help them, but rather exploit them. This is a very important story to tell because I think a lot of Caribbean Canadians had similar experiences to this, including my own family. Like many Jamaicans who were part of the Windrush generation, my granddad grew up living under this colonial mindset and with a spirit of adventure. He left his family and everything he knew to go to England in 1952. When I asked him why England, he obviously thought I was totally daft. England was the principal head of Jamaica, of course. When they arrived, they were forced into undesirable jobs. In my granddad's case, he had to work in the mines and then transport for the first two years. The influx of Black immigrants were welcomed by some in the UK, but many others, especially those in the government, tried their best to discourage these people. At the time, much of the West Indies were not independent yet. So nobody felt the need to have a passport. It would have been like saying someone would need a passport between Ontario and Quebec. It's silly, right? Well, the British government began targeting these people for immigration violations and even began deporting people. Further, many of the Windrush generation experienced housing discrimination meant to keep these immigrants from making permanent routes. The truth about the Windrush generation was only recently addressed by British Parliament when British Prime Minister Theresa May was forced to apologize for the government's actions during the 1950s until the 1980s. Feeling unwelcome, many of these migrants decided to leave and set out for their home countries or other countries in the Commonwealth, including Canada. Isn't this how your family came to Canada, Justine? Yeah, it was. My granddad had been in England for over a decade. He had many friends. He met and married an English woman, my grandmother. He had family in England. He'd gone a good job, saved up money. He felt it was time to settle down. And so my grandmother called the bank to arrange for a mortgage. She had all the money and she had good job prospects. Both of them had good job prospects. Uh, she was told that they would be shoe-ins. But then she was asked if my grandfather could come to the phone. And when they heard his thick Jamaican accent, they were told, Nope, there'd be a mix-up. They were no longer qualified for a mortgage. 
My grandfather knew exactly what this was. He wasn't a fool. His cousin had just had a very similar experience, except in his case, much more overtly racist. And he had also been refused housing. So my grandfather, he refused to sit back and take such disrespect. His cousin had just moved to Canada only a month earlier, so my granddad decided to come as well and settle in Mississauga. Such experiences were not uncommon, unfortunately. And thanks to the point system, many Caribbean immigrants were able to come to Canada when this had not been possible before. These immigrants began forming robust communities in places like Malton. For example, the reggae house band, Earth, Roots, and Water, under the Summer Records label, was founded in Malton. Summer Records was located in Malton and was owned and operated by producer Jerry Brown. Summer Records was one of Canada's first Black-owned record labels, as well as one of the first to release Canadian-made reggae music. Brown and most members of the band were originally from Jamaica. The band was composed of Adrian Homer Miller on vocals, Anthony Bass Hilber on bass, Colin Zuba Subban on drums, Matt Shelley on guitar, and Tony K.B. Moore on keyboards. In 1977, they released their album, Innocent Youths, a copy of which can be found in the Museum of Mississauga's Artifact Collection. And goes a little something like this. Nineteen seventy-seven was a particularly big year for them as they opened for the police on their first North American tour, as well as the Stranglers and Rough Trade in Toronto. However, immigration remained difficult for many African immigrants. It became clear that while the point system was outwardly meant to be objective, there were ways in which it was also selective. For example, English or French-speaking non-Black entrepreneurs with funds to establish businesses were favored. Another example. During South Africa's oppressive regime, white South Africans, who historically were more well-off, owned businesses, and spoke English at higher rates, were far more likely to be accepted into Canada than their Black counterparts. Further, in the 1970s, only three Canadian immigration and citizenship offices existed in the entire African continent, making it difficult for most to even access Canadian immigration services. Of all the countries, Nigeria and Ghana tended to be favored, though African immigration remained low on the whole. However, things changed in the late 70s. The 1976 Immigration Act in Canada established a new refugee class, and the 1978 Immigration Act allowed Canadian citizens to sponsor close relatives. This resulted in a rise of African and Caribbean immigration. Many of these immigrants came not because Canada was necessarily sought after, but rather because of instability, war, famine, and even violence in their home countries. By the 1990s, 48% of Black immigrants to Canada were born in Africa. Most immigrants settled in Toronto and other urban areas. However, at the same time that this was happening, Mississauga was evolving rapidly. The decades of the 1970s, 1980s, and 1990s are considered Mississauga's largest period of growth and sprawl. This is when we see most of the suburbs begin to develop from what had largely been a rural township. Economic incentives, the housing market, 
and car ownership expanded Toronto's influence and allowed residents to come to Mississauga and still keep their jobs in Toronto. Cooksville, Meadowvale, and Malton grew the largest Black communities because they were the places where the newest developments for cheap were being made, and this attracted African and Caribbean immigrants. Soon, cultural communities began to form. Today, half of all Black Mississaugans were born in Canada, while half were born outside of Canada, predominantly from the Caribbean. The majority immigrated after 1980, and most are fluent in either English or French. Malton is home to Mississauga's largest Black population, and Black residents are involved in every facet of Mississauga life. Black Mississaugans are involved in politics, business, entertainment, arts, and much more in this city. We wanted, therefore, to discuss with you some of the city's most influential Black leaders with the understanding that this is not a comprehensive list, but rather the beginning to a larger conversation of Black excellence. The first person we wanted to discuss is also one of the people who immigrated prior to the point system and rose to become the first person of color to hold a public office in Mississauga. Victor Alexander Vignali was born in 1894 in Trinidad to cacao planters. Victor and his parents immigrated to Canada in 1913 and later settled in Lakeview. In 1932, Victor marries Mary Hazel Patterson at St. Mary's Star of the Sea Roman Catholic Church in Port Credit. They live on Carthur Road in Lakeview. He operated a flower shop on Lakeshore Road, during which point he became president of the Lakeview Businessmen's Association. In 1951, he became chair of a citizens' committee for revoking the Temperance Act in Peel. In 1952, he chaired a committee to investigate whether Lakeview should separate from historic Mississauga, then known as Toronto Township. But ultimately, the committee made the decision to remain with the township. Who knows, without Victor Vignali's leadership, Lakeview may not have been part of Mississauga at all today. Then, from 1958 to 1965, Victor Vignali served as Lakeview Councillor for the Toronto Township. However, it wasn't Sunshine and Roses being on council. One report from 1959 tensions that Vignali may have faced on council. Unlike most back then, Vignali was not a smoker and disliked the clouds of cigar and cigarette smoke that filled council chambers. In particular, Reeve Robert Speck was rarely seen without a cigar puffing great clouds into the air. One day, Vignali had had enough. He lit up his own cigar, blowing the smoke in Speck's face. However, not being a smoker, this stunt was just a little too much for Vignali, who had to leave to catch his breath. Speck, who was rather amused by the whole situation, took up the unfinished cigar and proceeded to smoke it for Victor. Obviously, you don't just do that without there being a lead-up of annoyance and other smaller incidents. That being said, during his time on council, he had his hands on many different projects. For example, we see Victor Vignali front and center opening A.E. Crook's Park waiting pool in Lakeview. The pictures for this event always really strike me because we see Vignali putting his feet in the water alongside other white residents. Now, if that had been in some places in the United States, this simple act would have been illegal. While I do not necessarily think he was trying to make a scene, I do think the undertones of this act would have been felt by Vignali and everyone else there. It very much reminds me of when 
Mr. Rogers made history by inviting a Black police officer, played by Francois Clemens, to share the same waiting pool in a 1969 episode of Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood. It was iconic. Obviously, Victor Vignali was not doing this on national television, but I think Vignali certainly paved the way for future Black leaders. And all of this only a few years after James Marshall had been barred from the Lakeview Golf Club because of the color of his skin, which we mentioned earlier. Vignali was truly a trailblazer of his time, whether he knew it or not. Vignali later retired to Kingston, Jamaica, where he passed away in 1970. Another person who inspired people in Mississauga was the city's first Black teacher and principal, Arnold Eugene Bunty Ford. Mr. Ford was born in 1932 in Nova Scotia. Nova Scotia has a long, long history of Black Canadians. Uh, there, he was hailed as Arcadia University's star rugby, basketball, and track and field athlete in his class. After graduation, he attended the Ontario College of Education and moved to Mississauga to teach. From 1958 to 1967, he taught at Port Credit Secondary School and coached their football team. By 1967, Ford became Applewood Secondary School's vice principal. Vice principal to Gordon Graydon Memorial Secondary School and Glen Forest Secondary School's principal as of 1971, and Meadowvale Secondary School's principal in 1981. His stellar resume was thanks to his ability to understand and uplift his students. In a 1974 Toronto Star article, Ford was among teachers and parents discussing the state of Ontario schools. He revealed that even as a principal, he still found it important to teach students and mentor new teachers. Teacher Stanford Lowe remembered on his obituary that he instilled in his teachers the importance of treating each child as if they were one's own. Educator Diane Gray recalls Mr. Ford was the host principal for a class of children with various developmental challenges at Meadowville Secondary School in 1989. She remembers how he made the students and staff feel welcome and was willing to provide a variety of opportunities to promote an inclusive community. He stressed that as a teacher, one must understand how students learn rather than simply what they learn. When students know their teachers believe in them, they will feel more motivated to believe in themselves and their own abilities. His ability to touch the students in his school was unparalleled. It is clear from the many kind notes on his obituary, the impact he made on the lives of his students. Many students remembered Principal Ford as exemplifying the principles of discipline, hard work, and endurance. And likewise, teaching his students the merit of having priorities and following through on one's commitments. As a principal and basketball coach, he taught the importance of self-discipline demanding nothing but your best. Some of his students also had the opportunity to know him after graduation, and he would always remember them and insist they call him Arnie. In fact, his name recall was so good in and out of class that some speculate he must have a list of names neatly tucked into his pocket. He knew every single child by name and everyone knew him. He felt the great responsibility of preparing students for higher education and future careers. However, he also let future teachers in on a little secret. People go into teaching thinking they'll change lives, when really the life that you'll be changing forever is your own. It's so true. So many teachers look to prepare their students 
to become the future of our country. However, by the 1990s, it was clear that Black students were having a harder time in schools in Mississauga than their white peers. In 1993, Westwood Secondary School in Malton thought it had found the answer. A group of Black students approached school administration asking for a Black history class that told their history and the school obliged. When Black students felt themselves seen and heard in what they were learning, they were more motivated. Westwood Secondary was later renamed Lincoln M. Alexander Secondary School in 2000 after the first Black Canadian Member of Parliament, Cabinet Minister, and Lieutenant Governor of Ontario. The decision was obviously not an accident. Another giant above men, literally and metaphorically, was the great Oscar Peterson. Most of you probably know Oscar Peterson as one of the greatest jazz pianists and composers of all time, but did you know he lived in Mississauga? Oscar Peterson came from humble beginnings in Montreal, where he was born in 1925. His father was a railway porter, which was one of the only jobs a Black man could get in those days. His parents instilled in him a great love of music. Some called him the man with four hands for his mastery of piano. He released more than 200 recordings in his lifetime and won eight Grammy Awards. Through all of the touring and recording and general busyness of his life, Arendelle Village in Mississauga was the place he chose to rest, relax, and recharge. Besides his music, he was an avid photographer and deeply rooted in his heritage and the heritage around him. Oscar Peterson was the honorary patron of Heritage Mississauga from the 1990s until his death in 2007. In 2008, Oscar Peterson Hall, also known as OPH by students, was christened at the University of Toronto Mississauga campus. Another Black resident involved in the University of Toronto Mississauga campus is Leonard Paris, whom I had the pleasure of meeting at Benary's Historic House a year or so ago, and I was always really quite struck with his story. Mr. Paris was born in Nova Scotia in 1948 and remained there until he was 18 years old, at which point he enrolled in the Royal Canadian Air Force. He served 12 and a half years in the RCAF and is a graduate of the Military Police School of Security and Intelligence. In November 1970, he was deployed to Montreal in response to the War Measures Act. He left the military with the rank of Master Corporal and was awarded the Canadian Decoration for his service to Canada and the Canadian Forces. After his military service, Mr. Paris moved to Mississauga and began a 35-year career with the University of Toronto Campus Police Services, both at St. George and Mississauga campuses. He was the first person to draft and produce a formal emergency preparedness and response plan for the University of Toronto to be used on its three campuses. Leonard was awarded the University of Toronto's Stepping Up Award for his work in planning and participation in their behavioral intervention team. This multidisciplinary team assisted students, faculty, and staff who were in crisis or being targeted for harassment, threats, sexism, racism, or homophobia. He worked actively on issues of personal safety, equity, anti-racism, inclusiveness, and drug awareness, to name a few. Throughout his career, he has strived to always make fair and equitable treatment a priority. He has also given back to the community by being involved with the Toronto Safe City Committee, Toronto Crime Concern, Equity Issues Advisory Group, Peel Partners for a Drug-Free Community, Safe City Mississauga, and the Peel Region United Way.
After his retirement, Mr. Paris wrote a book about the experiences he had living in Nova Scotia in his youth and the structural racism, community isolation, and generational poverty which affected Paris and others just like him. It's called Jim Crow Lives Here, and if you haven't checked it out yet, please do and help support a local Mississauga author. His book has been helping to dispel the myth that racism is not something that Canadians need to think about or that it doesn't exist here somehow, because it does. And just because Jim Crow laws were not legalized in Canada does not mean that these experiences were not present north of the border. Mr. Leonard Paris and his book have been helping create awareness and inspiring change, which we love to see. Another person who you may have heard of is Stella Ume, who was born in Mississauga in 1975. Of Nigerian and Guyanese descent, Stella went on to become one of Canada's most decorated and unique gymnasts, male or female. However, she was first introduced to the sport quite accidentally, actually. One day, her mother got lost driving, so she stopped to ask for directions. With six-year-old Stella in tow, she entered the Mississauga Gymnastic Club to find her bearings. Stella quickly enrolled and had her first taste of the sport the next week. She fell in love instantly. She continued to learn and train diligently throughout her childhood, but her time to shine on the international stage came in a most unusual way. Despite missing qualifying for Team Canada at the Commonwealth Games in New Zealand in 1990, she was thrust into the spotlight when her teammate injured herself, requiring Stella to compete as her alternate. Stella's performance at the Commonwealth Games was nothing less than miraculous. Earning herself the nickname Cinderella Stella, her performance was mature and skillful beyond her years. She returned home with a gold medal for Canada and the highest vault score for the meet. This impressive start was just the beginning of her illustrious gymnastic career. Over the next four years, she performed on numerous international stages, including representing Canada at the Olympics in Barcelona, Spain in 1992, as well as the Commonwealth Games, Pan American Games, World Team Championships, and the Canadian Championships. Her world and Olympic results were unparalleled, and in 1994, she chose the Commonwealth Games to wrap up her career. The only veteran returning from the 1990 Games, it was important for Stella to end her career where it had begun. Stella won the all-around gold medal and was an outstanding ambassador of her sport among her peers. Likewise, Stella was co-winner of the 1994 Mississauga Female Athlete of the Year Award. In 2002, she was honored by being inducted into Mississauga's Sports Hall of Fame. In 2019, she was inducted into Mississauga's Legends Row. She went on to become a CBC analyst at the 2002 Commonwealth Games. She also performed with Cirque du Soleil. Stella now lives in Australia, where she is a writer, comedian, yoga and kids acrobatics instructor, activist, and mother. Another resident who has devoted themselves to community wellness is Wambui Karanja. She immigrated to Canada from Kenya in 1988 to escape political persecution. She grew up in an educated family. She earned a Bachelor of Law from the University of Nairobi in 1980 and a Diploma in Law at the Kenya School of Law in 1982. Someone with her background would surely have had an easy transition into Canadian life, right? Well, in the first few years in Canada, she settled in London, Ontario, where she experienced quite the opposite. There was a lack of knowledge of how and where to find help, a lack of resources and employment for her, 
contributing to a lack of proper finances, which would have allowed her to thrive. Safe to say it was a difficult few years. She later moved to Mississauga and realized she needed to find a solution. From 1990 to 1992, she studied gender and women's poverty rights at the University of Toronto and later became a PhD candidate studying social justice education at the University of Toronto from 2016 to 2020. In 1993, she helped found the African Community Services Appeal, or ACS, to help support Black and African newcomers to Peel region. They provide culturally relevant services to residents that help newcomers get the help they need so that no one has to go through what Wambia did. Now, a resident of Mississauga, Wambia Karanja is making sure that people know where they can go and what they can do to thrive here in Peel region. It's great to see Black residents in Mississauga in positions of power here in the city. For example, Ward 9 Councillor Martin Reed has been bringing Black voices and perspectives to council since he was elected in 2022. Ward 9, seated firmly in Mississauga's Meadowvale community, is home to one of Mississauga's largest Black communities. Councillor Reed has big shoes to fill after former Councillor Pat Sato, but he knows this area well and he has lived in Meadowvale nearly his entire life. In 1977, Mern's parents moved to Meadowville to raise their family. He attended local public schools, including Settlers Green, Edenwood Middle School, and Meadowville Secondary School, and graduated from Waterloo University with a degree in social work. Martin later received his Master's of Divinity in Marriage and Family Counseling from Tyndale University. From the beginning, Martin has centered his life around giving back to the community. He has worked for the Toronto Salvation Army and as a housing coordinator for the DAM, which is a youth drop-in center in Meadowvale. Then he started his own wellness business. In recognition of his two decades of volunteer service, Martin Reed was presented with the Queen's Platinum Jubilee pin. In 2020, Martin served as one of the 12 members of Mayor Crombie's Black Caucus. For two years, the Black Caucus advised the city of Mississauga on diminishing systemic barriers to promote greater well-being within Black communities and throughout the city of Mississauga. During his time on the Black Caucus, Martin recognized the importance of representation in order to make the changes needed to better the community and the city. Wanting to give back even more, Martin decided to run for Ward 9 Councillor in 2022. He won out against countless others. Councillor Reed hit the ground running during his first term. An avid user of Mississauga's MyWay Transit, Martin presented a motion at his first Mississauga Budget Committee and gained the support of his council colleagues to pass a one-year pilot project for $1 all-day transit fare for seniors and zero fares for kids 12 and under. This was an impressive feat for the first-time councillor. Martin also serves as a board of directors for Heritage Mississauga, showing support for our city's heritage. As a Black man, he has been able to bring that perspective to the table in a meaningful way in council. While that started with the Black Caucus, we can be sure that Reed and all other councillors will make sure that diverse voices will be heard on council from now on. The chair of Bonnie Crombie's Black Caucus is yet another person worthy of discussion here. Lyndon King was born in Guyana, it, and immigrated to Canada as a child, then settled in Mississauga. As a child, he grew up with a strong sense of volunteerism. From volunteering with the Boy Scouts to his local church to Carnival, 
giving back to the community is an important part of Lyndon's life. As an adult, he developed an interest in IT. However, he experienced many difficulties in his career. Despite job performance, he noticed that novice white employees were more likely to be promoted than their black counterparts. He noticed that employers would expect black employees to alter their identities or appearances to fit a standard mold of professionalism. He felt pressure to change himself, cut off his locks, fit that square box. He realized that the majority of companies do not provide a diverse environment for their employees. And that's a problem. What's the point of giving people a seat at the table if you don't care about what they say and actively make the environment hostile for them? It was blatantly obvious that some serious social justice and diversity training had to happen. Eventually, he became the first Black senior manager of IT operations for the Peel District School Board in 25 years, but he vowed he would not be the last. Among his many accomplishments, he is chair of the Black Community Advisory Council for the Greater Toronto United Way, president of Safe City Mississauga, director of Canadian Mental Health Association Peel Dufferin, was co-chair to the Black Community Advisory Committee for Peel Regional Police, director of Mississauga Arts Council, community and stakeholder liaison for Toronto Caribbean Carnival Festival. He was even a torchbearer for the 2015 Pan Am Games. Also that year, Lyndon King was honored as Mississauga Citizen of the Year. It was clear that with Lyndon King heading up Mayor Crombie's Black Caucus, there was a strong leader and community advocate at the reins. So in 2020, Lyndon King, Councillor Marn Reed, and all the other dedicated and talented members of the Black Caucus got to work. Obviously, we all know that Mississauga services were not designed to be diverse back in 1974. We know that there is inadequate awareness, understanding, and representation, which restricts people's ability to access and benefit from services. If you talk to anyone, they can tell you that. We know that racism, poverty, gender inequalities, and immigration discrimination issues are experienced at higher levels by the Black community. And we know that history has not done a great job of recording Black history or representing Black Canadians in history. This much was clear when Heritage Mississauga started to look into the history. Okay, but then what is the solution? More than 900 community members, subject matter experts, locally elected officials, and, and city staff took part in consultations hosted by the Black Caucus aimed at developing mutual understanding, trust, and partnership between the city and Black community members. The sessions were an opportunity for Black citizens to speak candidly about their lived experiences and challenges they have faced here in Mississauga. The caucus wanted to identify opportunities on how the city of Mississauga could make improvements to programs and services to make them more responsive to the needs of the community, and that's exactly what they did. In 2022, Mayor Crombie's Black Caucus came out with their long-awaited report, and it made recommendations in four main categories, inclusion, governance, economic empowerment, and wellness. We will discuss these very, very briefly here, but I do recommend that you actually go and read the whole report, which you can find online. Firstly, the report asks the city to simply connect with Black communities. Talk to them, form relationships that can begin forming the bridge of communication and understanding. 
These connections can help our Black communities reach greater political, social, financial, and innovative tools. Secondly, there needs to be greater accountability to address anti-Black racism and systemic barriers. This kind of opened up an interesting question as to whether such work could be done without the use of race-based data. While it can be a useful tool, it can also be weaponized to reinforce bias if used incorrectly or not in good faith. Ultimately, though, it seemed that such data would need to be utilized in some fashion, in which case transparency would be needed to ensure data is collected and used honestly and justly. Thirdly, the city must attract and assist Black diaspora into the building of a more prosperous Mississauga. Entrepreneurs would benefit greatly, especially those who would gain access to new opportunities, which prior to this have not existed. On the whole, this strategy would strengthen the city and empower Black communities. Lastly, it was apparent that many Black communities are stuck in reactionary roles to the issues that arise in their communities. Instead, there is a need to reposition Black communities into proactive, progressive roles. The Black community needs to be at the table, plain and simple, because they can contribute their knowledge and lived experiences in a way that can inform the activities and policies of their own community. We are talking about a shift in power dynamics, radically, but a shift for the better, which will hopefully represent our entire community as a whole in a much better way. This leaves us to ponder our future. We have a lot of work to do. We need to continue addressing systemic inequalities and discrimination within our city and beyond. We ultimately need to care about and uplift Black voices in a meaningful way because Mississauga will benefit from the insights, stories, and heritage of so many cultural groups that call our city home, because we are stronger together than apart. I hope you enjoyed listening to today's podcast, and remember, Black History Month isn't just about a month, it is life 365 days of the year. Our Black History Program is an ongoing project that we continue all throughout the year. So we invite you to reach out to us at info at heritagemississauga.org to learn about our most recent developments or even to tell your own story. No story is too big or too small. Thank you all very much for tuning in and we hope you will join us next week. We hope you enjoyed this week's installment of Saga 50 for 50. Help us keep celebrating the 50th anniversary of the city of Mississauga by following Heritage Bites wherever you get your podcasts. Also, be sure to check out Heritage Mississauga on all our social media platforms and follow hashtag Saga 50 for 50 to stay up to date on all of Mississauga's 50th anniversary celebrations. This is Heritage Mississauga signing off. Until next time.